This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. During the Supreme Court term that just ended, the justices weren't in the courtroom. But thanks to court artist Art Lean, SCOTUS Blog readers got a peek at some of the lawyers arguing before the court by telephone. One set of sketches that piqued readers' interest captured Jeffrey Fisher, the co-director of Stanford's Supreme Court Litigation Clinic, sitting before a speakerphone surrounded by masked students. We're very lucky to have Jeff Fisher joining us today to talk about running a Supreme Court clinic during a pandemic and about oral advocacy at the court more generally. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. So you've argued in the court over 40 times now. Um, you took a slightly less traditional path than many people who've argued there many times, the sort of frequent flyers. Although you've, you clerked at the court for Justice John Paul Stevens, you didn't work in the SG's office or go to work at the DC office of a big firm. Can you talk a little bit about your career path, which has obviously worked out quite well? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm happy to. And uh, I think the probably the best way to describe it is it was kind of an organic path that I didn't necessarily plan, so I have to cop to that first. But uh, but after clerking for the justice, um, my then fiance and I uh, decided to move to Seattle, which was just where we thought we wanted to live and build a life. Uh, she had a uh, an offer to work at the public defender's office there, and I set out to find a good job. Uh, and so, uh, but in but in retrospect, it really turned out to be a great move for me because. Uh, as I was able uh, to start to get my hands on some appellate work and ultimately a couple of petitions to send up to the court, um, you know, I was at a firm that was enormously supportive of my growth, but also was not stacked up with former people from solicitor general's offices and the like. And so, uh, so really, it was one of those situations where as a younger lawyer, I was perhaps able to get quicker and better opportunities um, because I'd gone a little bit off the beaten path. And so that was kind of my breakthrough was getting a couple of cases from Washington State up in front of the court. Um, and then from there, um, you know, I went to Stanford in 2006 uh, because I had been teaching part time at University of Washington in Seattle and always interested in teaching, but never wanting to give up entirely um, the opportunity to work on real cases for real clients and real problems. Uh, and so when Stanford started their Supreme Court litigation clinic uh, with Pam Carlin and uh, the inestimable Tom Goldstein, uh, that looked like an amazing uh, project. And we got into a conversation and it just ended up being the perfect fit for me. So you, as I said, you've argued over 40 cases over uh, over a almost 20 year period now. Has your approach to arguing changed over time, either based on what you've learned or as the, the makeup of the court has changed? No, it's funny. Uh, I hope this doesn't mean that I'm calcifying, but I don't think it's changed very much. Uh, you know, I have kind of, I, I tell people in my teach that there's no set way to prepare for argument. It's just whatever works for you to organize information in your brain and have it readily accessible. Um, and so the basic process of uh, doing doing a mini outline and moots and then continued refinement is basically the same thing I did in my first argument, which is what I do now. Uh, if there's anything that's changed over the years, I think it's that I've realized, um, I think 
I've, I've, I've come to embrace the hard questions a little bit more than I used to. I think it's only natural when you're a young lawyer that you're, that you're afraid of that one or two hard question that really puts you in the most defensive posture. Uh, and I think I've realized over the years that the court is always going to figure out that question <laughs> and they want to have an answer to it. Uh, and so I spend more time before argument, I think, truly grappling with the hardest questions and really understanding that most of the cases that go up to the court don't have a cut and dried answer and they really are looking to kind of balance two competing values or figure out um, you know of a number of options none of which is perfect and none of which is terrible what the best one is and so kind of really really genuinely dealing with that hardest part of your case um, when that so so I guess the way I would operationalize that is when when a question comes up an argument that scratches at that I embrace it and jump in more than I used to whereas I think I used to maybe be you know, try and skitter away, which of course never works. <laughs> it's really interesting. Your old boss, uh, the late Justice Stevens, was always really good at, at coming up with the really hard questions, it seems like. So talk a little bit about that first argument back in 2003, Crawford versus Washington. <laughs> uh, you know, I've sometimes said that um, it's, it's you know, I've been lucky enough to do a lot of cases, but I'm not sure I've ever done an oral argument that was more challenging than that one, just on pure objective terms, because uh, you know, one way to characterize that argument is I went in, the, went in there and said, uh, you know, Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, I'd like to, you to completely revamp an area of law that comes up in criminal prosecutions every day in every state across the country. <laughs> Do you have any questions? <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, maybe it was the hubris of youth, but uh, but I think just for, it was crazy that that just happened to be my first argument, one that was really that challenging. Um, and happily, I sort of managed to get through it. And, and I think that the thing I remember most about it, besides the substance, was just how nervous I was. I mean, I had the one great benefit that I um, I went back to the exact same clerk, the exact same court that I had clerked for. Uh, and so the justices were exactly the same. And that was a little bit reassuring. And I especially remember Justice Stevens coming out from behind the curtains and sharing at least a quick look with him of reassurance. So that was really meaningful. Um, but I was just so nervous that I was just trying to get through it. Uh, and it was and I think that I've realized that the, the difference between my first argument and my second argument is far more dramatic than any other difference um, I've ever done um, up there as, I, as things have evolved. And I think the thing that happens over the years when you get a little more comfortable is you can just hear the questions better and be in the moment better. Whereas that first argument, I remember, um, you know, always just trying to get through it. <laughs> Did you walk away from the first argument thinking, I can't wait to do the next one? Or were you just glad that the first one was over? Oh, I don't even remember. It was probably, I was a half halfway blacked out by that point. Uh, I mean, I think it was, uh, it's absolutely exhilarating to argue in front of the justices. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the, I think it was the Chief Justice Roberts who has the, the famous quip of uh, every night before an argument, he would say, uh, why do I do this to myself? And every afternoon after an argument, say, when do I get to do it again? Um, and so I, I think that's, that's really, that's really accurate for my emotions. Um, and so I think I probably was riding on a bit of a high and it was an exciting argument too, because we were asking the court to do something pretty big and many of the justices seemed very interested and engaged in that, in that um, potential outcome. So I remember buzzing more about the substance afterwards than, than anything else, because it was just exciting for all the work we put in. It looked like we had a court that might be receptive. 
So you've hinted at this a little bit, but can you say a little bit more, walk us through a little bit more in terms of your preparation for arguments? How many mood chords do you do? Do you practice your answers to certain questions? Anything else in, to, to get ready for the oral argument? Yeah, as I said, that it's pretty much the basic process I've always done. Maybe I do on the margin fewer moots now than I used to, but I always do at least two and, and often three. Uh, but as I get, basically for me, I get re-engaged with the materials, um, you know, a couple of weeks before the argument um, and start to do what for me is probably an idiosyncratic thing, but I do like a very short, compact outline uh, where I basically um, am kind of doing a schematic or an architectural design <laughs> in my mind of the argument um, so that I know where, how each little piece fits together um, that's kind of what I'm trying to accomplish and get it readily accessible in my mind. So I go back and forth between this two or three page outline and then diving deeply into each little module, um, you know, as the days go by and then coming back out to the outline and kind of going deep and shallow, deep and shallow. Um, I do two or three moots, as I said, um, probably pretty standard compared with, with, with respect to everybody else. Uh, just try to get a mixture of voices uh, I always try to get a mixture of generalist Supreme Court people and substantive experts in whatever field the case is involved in, so I can blend both of those perspectives, hopefully, into the argument, ultimately. Um, and then the last thing I do um, in between the last mood and the oral argument um, is maybe a little more individualized to me. Um, I take a really big walk, usually, <laughs> uh, the day before argument, usually the afternoon and sometimes into the evening. Uh, where I just get my eyeballs away from the printed page and just play out exchanges in my head and just talk through the argument to myself, sometimes even a little bit out loud, uh, but, but, but often just in my head. And um, yeah, one thing that I've also found is that so much of it is just being fresh and prepared and in the moment the next day. And so taking a several hour walk or up and down the mall or otherwise around DC gives me some physical exercise. And I find that to be sort of therapeutic during the day and helps me get a good night's sleep the night before. And some good scenery. Um, I want to play an excerpt from your opening statement this past term in Fulton versus Philadelphia. This was the challenge to Philadelphia's decision to exclude Catholic social services from its foster care system because the agency wouldn't work with same-sex couples. And you represented a group that advocates on behalf of children in foster care and a group of LGBTQ plus foster parents. And you were the fourth lawyer to argue that day behind the lawyer for Catholic Social Services, the lawyer for the Trump administration, um, and then the lawyer for the city. So, so here you are in your, your opening statement. Uh, Mr. Fisher. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I think what makes us feel like a hard case is that CSS is doing valuable work, it is acting based on traditional religious beliefs, and it may appear that the cost of accommodating it would not be too high. But that overlooks two serious problems with CSS's claim. First, CSS is not acting in its private capacity, but rather as a government contractor. Its claim, therefore, implicates the government's managerial interests, as well as the imperative that governmental services are made even-handedly available to all citizens. And second, free exercise claims cannot turn on judicial assessments of whether religious views are honorable or offensive. 
If the Constitution requires accommodation here, then Mr. Katyal said all manner of other allowances must be made for foster care and other service agencies. And because there's no constitutional difference between independent contractors and government employees, CSS's position would also imply, for example, that police officers could decline on religious grounds to enforce particular laws. Prison guards could insist on evangelizing to inmates. The implications go on and on, but the upshot is this. Whatever rules might govern free exercise claims outside of government contracting, the city's anti-discrimination requirement is constitutional because it is a reasonable rule governing the selection of those who will care for children in the city's custody. So at this point in the oral argument, how much of this had you planned in advance and how much of this was responding to what you'd heard, you know, in the, in the previous hour and a half or hour and 45 minutes? I think the opening there was for the most part planned, but I had a couple of different options depending on how the, how the argument was playing out as to where to go. Uh, but one thing I think a lot of us did during the pandemic was take advantage of the opportunity that uh, you could literally write out an opening and read it if you wanted to. Now, I think you had to beware of being too scripted, for lack of a better word, uh, or too, uh, especially if you're going forth, <laughs> you know, just to be, uh, uh, you don't want to be out of the flow of the argument. But I think that for Fulton, the introduction that I had planned with a couple of different moving parts, uh, more or less fit with where the court was um, during the argument. So I kind of went with that. So that is one thing that you, that you mentioned sort of this past term and, and change, you know, you had, you had a couple of arguments by telephone. Did, did anything else change in terms of sort of your preparation or your strategy when you were arguing by telephone and the argument format was different that they were taking turns rather yeah. than having to deal with this very hot bench where the questions could come from all sides. Right. Uh it was very, very different uh, to argue by telephone um, as compared to being in the courtroom. And the biggest difference it actually surprised me. I thought the biggest difference would be not being able to see their faces uh, and read their body language, which which was hard. Uh, but um, but not not maybe not as difficult as I thought it would be just because the justices have their own personalities and they're not shy to interrupt and all of that uh, if you're not giving them being helpful. The thing that I found most difficult about the format the court used last term was the one by one questioning and the inability to um, to play out exchanges all the way through or to complete an answer to one justice's hard question. So, you know, particularly in the close cases where it might be too you know, sometimes it's one justice in the middle, or even if it's two or three justices in the middle, um, you know, there's going to be two or three like critical questions or critical points that are going to come up. And in a normal argument in the courtroom, what I would do at that point is try to keep circling back to what I think is the critical point for maybe the critical vote. Um, but in this format, you know, it's this one by one questioning, you really had to honor and respect each justice's particular time, even if that justice had an idiosyncratic view, or if that wasn't necessarily a pivotal vote. And so for me, the hardest thing during this art, during this format, was to give complete and comprehensive answers and feel like you'd said everything you wanted to say on those most important things. So one thing I did as I did a handful of these arguments, for example, is the chief was giving people time to wrap up at the very end. That was another kind of innovation uh, during the pandemic arguments. And 
when I first got that time, I kind of had a conclusion that I gave and a wrap up. And then I ended up later on uh, in the term just using that time to then circle back to particular justices questions, because I figured that would be better time spent to actually address what somebody had asked me if I had anything more to say than just me guessing or summing up uh, with material. So um, anyway, that was one thing that I think I struggled with. And uh, hopefully when the, hopefully the court will be back in the courtroom in the fall and uh, we'll get back to the other modes of arguing. Exactly. Yes. Hopefully these are all strategies that no one will ever need again. Because <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, everyone will be in the courtroom. I mean, I will add, Amy, that, um, you know, you mentioned at the top the, the Arlene sketches with the students. And, um, and you know, that was, the for me, the real uh, uh, silver lining of this way of arguing uh, was that because the, you know, because we run a clinic with law students and I don't have lawyer co-counsel within the clinic exactly uh, that can sit at counsel table. You know, the students tend to sit in the back in, in a public seating in the courtroom for oral arguments. And in this mode of arguing, I got to sit around the table with the students and actually engage in real time with them. Uh, because when you're not talking in that format, you are on mood. Um, and so we could actually just share ideas back and forth or react to the justices questions. Uh, and that was really special uh, and a neat opportunity for the students and for me. That's true. I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but they they got to be your your co-counsel. Truly. Yeah. Yes. And they always are. But they just, always are, but they actually got to. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in the uh, and I think that was that that was uh, anyway, that was a neat opportunity um, for, for all of us. Um, when you are, uh, you know, obviously in COVID times, when you are sitting at a table in a conference room at Stanford with, with your students, you can bring whatever you want. But when you're in the courtroom, what do you take up to the lectern? Uh, so the only thing I take up is that little two or three page outline I was describing okay. earlier, um, which somewhere along the line, um, I think it was Walter Dellinger who suggested to me, you know, you can, you can put those two or three pages in a manila folder and make it look a little more professional. <laughs> so, so now I have a little manila folder with basically just two or three pages uh, taped or, or stapled on. And, and candidly, even from the beginning, I hardly ever looked at it. Um, and, and, and now, uh, but, I, I don't think I ever do, but it's almost like Linus and my security blanket up to the podium. I don't think I have the hardihood of some advocates who just go up there and uh, 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 just put their hands directly on the wood plank there. Uh, but it, it's, it's just something to have. And I think the only time I really use it during argument uh, over the years is occasionally if I get a question that requires me to give a citation to a case or a statutory provision, and maybe I don't have that memorized or even just kind of in the nervousness of the moment, it's not springing to mind, I can sometimes look down and get that. But, but as for substance, um, uh, there's not really a real purpose to bringing it to the podium. <laughs> So this is something else that you alluded to, you know, in non, again, in non-COVID times, you know, when you're up there and you've got somebody whose vote you, you know, or you think probably isn't in play, but that person is just peppering you with questions. Like, how do you deal with that? It can be a challenge and there's different versions of it because sometimes that person, even though uh, that particular vote may not be in play. That person is nevertheless homing in on, you know, certain 
certain problems with your argument or certain um, issues in the case that are going to be important to the other people who are the pivotal votes. And so when you get when that's the situation, uh, you've just got to stay with it and give the best answers. I mean, I remember many times where I'd be in that situation and you know, particularly as I was describing earlier in my earlier days of arguing where I might have tried to be wriggling out of those situations. And then, for example, Justice Kennedy would step in and say, no, I want you to answer, you know, Justice Scalia's question or whoever it might be. Uh, and so uh, that was a good lesson that even if uh, the pivotal vote isn't the one asking the questions, they may be designed to elicit information for the pivotal vote. Um, there are other times, though, where I think the justice uh, might just kind of be, uh, you know, pursuing a line of questioning more, uh, more unique to that person. Uh, and there, you know, I think you always have to answer the question, uh, but I would look for opportunities maybe a little more readily to pivot out of that into somebody else's concerns. And for me, one way I've always done that, um, and I know that, you know, some lawyers are comfortable with this and some aren't, but I've always found it easier to sort of say, to, to name a justice by name and say, I'd like to get now, I, I'd like to turn back to Justice Breyer's question or, or if I could just finish my answer to such a Soto, Justice Sotomayor. And I think the justices in that way are more readily um, deferential in a sense to their colleagues when you're saying, I'm trying to get trying to get back to one of your colleagues rather than like, I'd like to shift gears now to something I'd like to talk about. <laughs> I don't think there's, I don't think they're gonna let you off the hook as easily in that, and, and, uh, when, you, when you do something that looks like that. And do you ever get, despite you know, the moot courts and all of the time that you've spent thinking about a case, do you ever get questions from a justice that just come out of left field that you hadn't anticipated? And, and then what do you do? Oh, my gosh. Um, I'd say almost every argument I get a question or two that um, that at least in some way is something I haven't prepared for. And I think my first cut is that on, on, on a situation like that is hopefully you've prepared enough to understand your worldview of the case that even if something comes to you that you hadn't directly thought about, you can plug it into your worldview and figure out this is what the answer needs to be in the moment. Um, there are occasions where, um, where I've gotten a question that I just frankly do not know the answer to or am just so at sea that I don't know that I'm almost that I don't know how to answer it. And a few times in one way or the other, I've just copped to not, to not knowing the answer uh, or saying, I'm not sure, but if you're, you know, but if you're asking, but this is what you're worried about, here's what I have to tell you. Uh, I just think that if you're really truly stumped, it is better to admit that and to find a way to confess that than it is to take a guess. Uh, Cause I've seen way too many lawyers, even back to my clerkship days, uh, I think kind of take a guess at a at a hypothetical or or something else more sort of objective or concrete about the record or the statute, and I think that can get you into far worse problems. Uh, so it's never a place you want to be, and it's just I think the lesser of two evils sometimes to um, to just kind of admit that you don't know the answer. So I want to play now your rebuttal this past term in Lang versus California. This was a Fourth Amendment case. You represented the defendant. And the question was whether when police are pursuing someone for a misdemeanor, that's always an exigent circumstance that will allow police to follow the suspect into his house without a warrant. Thank you, counsel. Uh, rebuttal, Mr. Fisher. 
Thank you. Three points, Your Honors. First, as to the common law, the common law is dispositive in this case. The common law required a warrant to enter the home unless a specified exception existed at law. Entick says that, uh, Chitty said that, Hawkins said that, numerous other authorities. And so the absence of any exception that covers all misdemeanors is dispositive here. And it really is, as Justice Barrett put it, uh, it's exigent circumstances all the way down because the test the common law commentators were applying was whether there was a requirement for an immediate arrest. And so the subcategories that, that we've talked about today really are subcategories of that test. Uh, the second point I'd like to address is the question, why not just make hot pursuit doctrine itself a direct species of um, exigent circumstances, as I think Justice Alito and others have asked. Uh, I think the reason to resist leaning too hard on a special category of hot pursuit is it puts a lot of pressure on exactly what would constitute a hot pursuit uh, and what is hot. At common law, it was clear that escape meant escape from a prior custodial arrest, and Hale and others were uh, were precise about this. So for the other side to craft a rule or for the court to craft a rule about hot pursuit, you'd have to ask questions about is some other form of attempted detention, like in this case, uh, good enough to trigger a hot pursuit? Does the suspect have to be aware of it or reasonably uh, perceived to be aware of it? Does the officer have to witness the crime? There'd be any number of other case-specific questions on which circuit splits could already be seen to be proliferating in the lower courts about what constitutes hot pursuit. So we think the best solution here is to recognize in general terms that hot pursuit, as Justice Kavanaugh puts it, is important for exigent circumstances, but not draw firm, bright lines about a category of hot pursuit. And then finally, you have the question of administrability, just as Breyer and others have asked about that. And let me say two things. One is that officers apply the exigent circumstances doctrine on a daily basis across the country in all other circumstances. And the court has never been confronted with arguments saying that is unworkable or difficult for officers to do. It is actually the nature of their jobs to consider the totality of the circumstance. And the second point about that is that their own policies and practices direct them to do that. And even the Solicitor General today, even through the form of a presumption, says that officers should be considering the totality of the circumstances. So it's the other side, again, that's asking for the officers to consider something additional, some sort of hot pursuit special category that would complicate matters. We're asking for the officers to do exactly what they do all the time. And then the presumption, or even worse, the categorical rule, would just complicate matters. Uh, and it's just as Kagan pointed out, there's already a thumb on the scale of officers in other ways uh, to give them the benefit of the doubt. You don't need a categorical rule or even a presumption to solve that problem on a daily basis. Uh, for, for all those reasons, we'd ask the court to reverse. So generally, you know, when you represent the petitioner, you have a rebuttal time. What are you trying to accomplish with your rebuttal? And what were you trying to do here to the extent that those are not necessarily the same thing? <laughs> uh, I guess that's another thing I've learned over the years, um, which ties into some things I've said earlier, which is I used to think, I used to treat a rebuttal as a rebuttal, I mean, as, the, as the name would indicate, as a rebuttal to the other side's argument. And, and I will still do that sometimes, but more what I use the rebuttal for now is to respond to justices questions that were asked to my opponent uh, or um, uh, than, than what my opponent actually says. Uh, because again, at the end of the day, you're trying to persuade the justices. And for me, oral argument is about hearing what their concerns, their confusion, their worry, uh, whatever those things are. 
And so, you know, I've had my time in the top half of the argument. And now there's been like half an hour of more information that's come out. And so what I tend to use the rebuttal for is just to walk through the concerns and the questions that I've heard from who I think the pivotal votes are. Uh, that's primarily what I use the rebuttal for. And so I think in this rebuttal, I was actually going down the court by a few of the different justices by name to say, you know, this seemed to be what you were worried about and or, or just wondering about, and let me give you a, a fuller answer on that, or sometimes maybe my first answer on that. Um, and so in some ways, I think rebuttals as I use them now are, you know, they're less lyrical. They're not like a big, a big uh, uh, flourish of oratory at the end so much as they're just like that last opportunity to really connect and directly answer people's questions. Getting the job done, clearly. Um, <laughs> in that case, uh, um, so what advice would you give to somebody who's arguing at the court for the first time? Um, I mean, I do this, I, I guess I, that's not just a hypothetical, that's a reality. I work with a lot of lawyers who, uh, in my clinic and otherwise, who are going to be arguing for the first time. And I think that there's, you know, quite obviously, there's two levels to being in the court for the first time. One is um, just understanding kind of the procedures of oral argument and how the nine justice court works and how fast paced it is, at least in the ordinary setting of the early burly in the courtroom. And then the second piece is understanding your case. Um, and, and so the thing that I think for lawyers who haven't been in the court um, before, uh, for them to understand is how wide open argument is in terms of the justices treatment of precedent and their approach to the law. I think that lawyers that are accustomed to arguing a lot of other courtrooms feel like they can hem judges in with precedent, uh, feel like they, um, they can take a, you know, higher court opinion and kind of quote some language and the justices or whatever court you're in front of will feel bound by that. And and the thing with the US Supreme Court is that, you know, there are the rare cases about like whether we should overturn such and such a case, but, but the vast majority are ones where the court's precedent would probably allow it to go in either direction. Uh, and there you have to just bring your lens way back and talk from first principles to the justices and, and explain why things that even the justices themselves have said before, you know, in the midst of opinions, but might not be sort of the core holding of a case, like where, why those things make sense. And you have to kind of tell a story about the law um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a just much more first principles way than you do in any other courtroom. Uh, and I've, I've often said that's why, I, that's one reason why I think, um, you know, I, I didn't know this going in, but one reason I've found that I think our clinic works is that uh, in some ways I think law students uh, have have an approach to the law that is that is more like the U.S. Supreme Court's than a lot of lawyers do because that's the way they're trained to think in law school before they get out into practice. And so, you know, getting feedback uh, and and working through the issues with my students um, is actually really helpful for me. And when we're preparing, whether it be co-counsel or other lawyers for argument, we do moots and give advice. Uh, I, I think actually having the students part of that is really helpful too. So that is actually the, the perfect segue back to my final question, which goes to what I talked about at the beginning of the episode, which is talk a little bit more about working with law students in a clinic during the pandemic. We saw you sitting there during the oral arguments, but what was it like 
you know, working in a clinic with law students. I mean, I, I imagine so much of, of what makes the clinic go is the sort of small group contact. Were you able to do that at any point, uh, at some point during the year? How did it, how did it work? Right. Uh, well, you know, it was a challenge, obviously. Uh, and, you know, the entire law school and clinical program was remote all of last year for the, for the, for the most part. Um, so in some ways we were lucky, uh, you know, as compared to other clinics at the law school, appellate work is a little more readily transferable to a video Zoom format uh, than other forms of uh, representation and advocacy. Uh, so we were able to just move our seminar over to Zoom. And when we worked on individual cases with our smaller teams, we could just have small little Zoom meetings. Um, when, we, uh, when we got further into each project and we were uh, editing the briefs, uh, we were able to use this, this sorry, I'll, that was a door slam. Uh, when, when we were uh, working on the individual projects uh, and editing the briefs, uh, we were able to just throw them up on the share screen of Zoom. And so we would spend hours doing our red line on the screen share function, uh, which is uh, a pretty close approximation to what we would normally do um, in this conference room at Stanford, where we put the brief up on a screen and go through it line by line together. Uh, so we were able to do it. And, you know, many listeners, I'm sure themselves are appellate lawyers. And so they would realize that the pandemic wasn't as hard on us as it was on some other people. Uh, I think what we lost was just um, all of that little in-between time, uh, you know, the casual conversation before class starts and, the, and the, you know, the orders list came out this morning and just an organic conversation starts around the cubicles and all those kinds of things, I think, were, were hard to let go. Uh, and, you know, like everybody else, I just miss seeing people face to face. You know, Stanford let us meet with our students uh, socially distanced outside. And so... You know, given our fortuitous climate, we took advantage of that. Yes, exactly. To some degree. You're, and, you're not in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, you're yeah, in Connecticut. So, so we were able to just kind of sit in, a, sit in small circles and, and talk outside. And, and that was fun to talk through the issues a little bit and just see each other and connect. Um, so, so, so we muddled through, um, but, um, and, uh, but I'm very excited to get back to the courtroom and very excited to, uh, to get back and see our clients and things like that too. I mean, that's a part of the clinic that had to move online as well as uh, visiting our client or having our client come visit us um, and, and and all those kind of personal connections uh, will be uh, wonderful to bring back online in the fall. And I should know this, but I'll ask anyway, do you have an argument in the October calendar? I do. Yes, our clinic has a case called Hemphill versus New York, which uh, which actually yes. that also brings us first full circle because it happens to be a confrontation clause case. So uh, so we haven't had one of those in a while. And uh, uh, that it'll be fun and interesting to see the court get back into that material. All right. Well, we'll look forward to it. Jeff Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great. To, great to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.